The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. Not ready. And welcome back to Brutal Nation for our Friday edition. Smartass over there. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is Tammy the Smartass Underwood. Say hi. I'm afraid to. I'd be afraid too. <laughs> Butthole. Meanie. <laughs> All right. So give me your perversions because it's my favorite day. Well, yeah. Well, like I said, I'm not going to get into a whole. I do talk about some of the crimes to get into it, but he had so many victims. Okay. But I didn't get into a whole lot of it. And. Hang on, I had something pop up on my computer. Um, because and second of all, he's very, very well known. Okay, um, I am talking about for people who don't know Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. It sounds familiar. I just can't place what the fuck he did. So. The Golden State Killer. Yeah, still, I, okay. it doesn't ring. Well, anyways, he's a name some of you might already be familiar with, and under normal circumstances, because of, because of his notoriety. Um, I wouldn't have considered this case at all because it was like, to me, it was like a Ted Bundy, Green River Killer type of case, you know, very well known. However, I am featuring him today because of what it took for the authorities to identify and apprehend him. For the longest time, I thought for sure that his crimes would go down in the annals of crime history as unsolved. I mean, he would have been a whodunit Wednesday for reals. Um, Between 1974 In 1986, throughout the state of California, D'Angelo was responsible for a minimum of 120 burglaries, 50 rapes, and 13 murders. Damn busy boy. Yeah, he personally carried out a minimum of three separate crime sprees, which earned him a a new moniker from the media each time because... For that longest time, law enforcement and the media believed the crimes were committed by different people. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's why this case really... Um, I'll get more in depth in a little bit, but I want to take a second to illustrate my point. It's believed that when D'Angelo first began committing crimes, it was in the San Joaquin Valley, and he earned the name Vesalia Ransacker. That's where he committed most of his burglaries, okay? Then another crime spree erupted in the Sacramento area, and the perpetrator of those crimes was given the name East Area Rapist. Then there were some other names given too, and I'll get into those in a minute. He was also called the Burger King and the Taco Master. I'm just kidding. I'm just fucking with you. I was like, what the fuck? They gave him so many damn monikers, I thought I'd throw him a couple. Oh, no, you'll hear all of them here in a second. From there... Another crime spree broke out in Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Orange County, where the unknown suspect at the time was given the name Night Stalker. Wait for it. When Richard Ramirez was arrested, they couldn't link him to all of the Night Stalker crimes. For that reason, since law enforcement and the press still thought this was a suspect, he was starting to be called the original Night Stalker. Ramirez was? No. Or this dude? This was. dude. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. 
Because I was like, nice soccer. Wait a minute. But no, that's why. Because he was committing those murders when Richard was committing his in San Francisco. So they thought it was the same person. And so they couldn't link Ramirez to the crimes down in Santa Barbara. Okay. Yeah. It was really, uh, when you read about it, it's really bizarre. I don't get into it a whole lot in here because, like I said, it's a very well-known crime. Um, So D'Angelo's crimes wouldn't be solved for decades. Four decades, to be more specific. By the time he was arrested in 2018, he had earned the following monikers. Vesalia Ransacker, East Area Rapist. Now, they also called him the East Side Rapist and the East Bay Rapist. Then there was the Night Stalker. Then he was an original Night Stalker. Then he was called Eurons, which stands for East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker, because they were able to link those two sprees together. Then he was called the Diamond Knot Killer, the Creek Big Killer, and the Golden State Killer. It's ten fucking monikers. Yeah, dude. I'm, now I am going to call him the Burger King, the Taco King, Mary Poppins. McDonald's. McDonald's. Wendy's. <laughs> The what the Wendy's Wrangler? Yeah, no, it was and I was hot like, yeah. covered cheeseburger. Yeah, when they realized that all of them, all of these crime sprees were linked together, that's when they started being called the Golden State Killer. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Yeah, with that many nicknames, what would almost expect to see some wild-eyed monster taking the perp walk, right? Yeah, you would think. Yeah, I guess I probably would have thought he would bear more of a resemblance to Richard Trenton Chase. You know, that drawn, kind of haggard, hollow, almost like, I don't know, it's really hard to describe. He looks like literally um, somebody from Nightmare Before Christmas. The suit does? Yeah, no. uh, Trenton Chase does. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like really drawn and, yeah, kind of like, ugh. But anyways, what was I? Oh, I guess oh, when you saw his picture, you could believe that he had raped and murdered several people on fucking um, for Renton, Richard Trenton Chase. I believed it right. when I saw his picture. However, when D'Angelo was arrested, he seemed so er- ordinary. I probably would have said he bore more of a resemblance to Andy fucking Griffith. Dude, I'm looking at this dude's current picture. He's yeah, like, you don't want to look at the current one. You want to find the one where he took the purple. He's 8,000 fucking years old, oh, man. Yeah. Scott, he committed his crimes in 1974 to 1986. I'm looking for more. In 2008, he's a fucking old-ass bastard. <laughs> but even when you find his younger pictures, he looks like Andy fucking Griffith. Like, not exactly like Was him. Was he but- a cop at one time? Can I get into my fucking story? I'm just asking because there's a picture. Don't fucking interrupt me. Was he a cop? Don't interrupt me. I'm not going to tell you right now. Okay. I'm not interrupting. Liar. I am not going to say still, another word. I'm still you're not done. interrupting. I hate you. Um, see me? I'm not interrupting. Fuck off, Scott. Let's see. However, when he was arrested, he seemed... Oh, anyways. Then when I saw him enter the courtroom for his arraignment... I thought he looked more like he could have been one of my mom's former dementia patients. And I'll get into that here in a second, too. After D'Angelo was charged with the crimes he committed, his neighbors and former colleagues described him as an average Joe. Granted, he was known for always being so serious and hardly ever cracking a smile. But for the most part, he seemed like the ordinary, everyday retiree who had settled in the nice community in in Sacramento. 
His case had many people asking one very complex question. How could a well-respected retired family man who hide such a depraved secret for so long? Well, I hope I can answer that for you. Okay? Are you ready? You're not even paying attention. I am. I'm listening to you at the same time that you're talking, because I'm looking at pictures of D'Angelo. Okay. Anyways, Joseph D'Angelo, James D'Angelo, was born in Bath, New York, on November 8th, 1945. Now, Bath is in northern New York, in northern New York, approximately 80 miles south of Rochester on I-390. Even though he was born on the East Coast, he spent the majority of his younger life in the Sacramento suburbs. D'Angelo was a student at Folsom High School, and then when his mother, a waitress at Denny's, moved to Auburn with her new husband, a traveling welder, he moved with her. Um, After graduating from high school, D'Angelo wound up serving 22 months in the Navy, and he fought in Vietnam. When the soldier returned home, he had become a decorated vet. During his time in the service, he earned a National Defense Service Medal, a Vietnam Service Medal, and a Vietnam Campaign Medal. So he served in the war. In 68, D'Angelo, I got, I love how I get to skip over your favorite year here. In 1968, D'Angelo enrolled in Sierra College. And took, One year before 69, just want to point that out. And took, yeah, like nobody knows how to fucking count out there, right? <laughs> and he took classes there until 1970. When classes resumed in 1971, he transferred to California State University, Sacramento, And he remained there until he graduated in 1972 with a criminal justice bachelor's degree. There. Next time, wait for your fucking questions. Well, I was just making sure that the picture lined up with what it said. That's all. Yeah. One of D'Angelo's former neighbors remembered him from his younger years and said that he was a very clean cut and quite pleasant to be around. The year after he graduated from California State, 1973, he got married to Sharon Marie Huddle. He also claims that around that time, he married, around the time he married Sharon, he became either, quote, an intern or a volunteer at the Roseville Police Department. However, later that same department said they, quote, found no records to validate his claim. But if he was a volunteer, I don't know if they would have records on that back then. Very curious. Yeah. I mean, an intern, they probably would, but he could have been lying. Nobody knows. Um, one thing that I can't, that can't be disputed, though, is that from 1973 to 1976, D'Angelo was an officer working for the Exeter Police Department. Then, from 1976 to 1979, he worked as an officer in the Auburn Police Department. For the majority of the time, people thought he was an upstanding citizen and officer of the law. Okay? People around D'Angelo started to have doubts about him right about the same time he left the Auburn Police Department because he was fired after he was caught and charged with theft. For some reason, this man went into a drugstore located in Citrus Heights to pick up a hammer and some dog repellent, and you'll find out why. He didn't feel the need to pay for them. Well, you're at the bar. Ugly chicks are trying to hit on you. 
need some your dog, dog repellent. Need some dog repellent, man. To, then what's the hammer for? To hit that bitch upside her head? Just in case the dog repellent doesn't work. Sometimes the chicks that are hitting on you have rabies. Sink, I put them out of their misery. What? I have nothing to say. Nothing. You're so mean to me. How does that mean? <sighs> um, let's see. The extra son wrote up a profile of D'Angelo back in 73 when he was hired on at the department, on the Exeter Police Department, that stated, D'Angelo believes that without law and order, there can be no government, and without a democratic government, there can be no freedom. Law enforcement is, is his career, he says, and his job is serving the community. In reality, it seems as if his military experience, education and criminal justice, and learning the intricate process of police investigation proce- investigative procedures were what almost helped him get away with a perfect crime. Okay? Because remember, he wasn't caught for 40 years. Did a damn good job of it, man. Yeah. You'll find out what happened. So D'Angelo's crimes began in 1974, not long after he took an oath to protect and serve with the Exeter Police Department. Only back then, the perpetrator was an unknown individual the press had labeled the Facilia Ransacker. When the ransacker stopped his crime spree in 1975, it was believed that he had been responsible for a minimum of 100 burglaries in a year. Damn. Yeah. The ransacker would... overtime. Yeah. He would also have a very distinct modus operandi. Upon gaining entry into the residence, he wouldn't touch any of the high-value items the homeowner had. Instead, he typically stole the smaller items laying around the house. Oh, okay. Yeah. Once the authorities were able, and I think there's a reason, and I think you might see it. I don't get into it until the end, kind of. Once the authorities were able to determine a pattern to the break-ins when they arrived on a crime scene, they were likely to find the underwear belonging to the lady of the house strewn all over the house. He liked his panties. You think? (laughs) Super duper. They feel so soft against my skin. They never mentioned any of the panties missing. They just mentioned them strewn all over the house. Maybe he was sniffing them. I don't know. Panty sniffer. That just grossed me out a little bit. It's happened to me. You're a panty sniffer or somebody sniffed yours? Both. Oh my God, I'm done. There's nothing like meeting a homeless girl on the street and saying, hey, if I give you five bucks, I smell your panties. Oh, ew! <laughs> You're welcome. I hate you. Be a smart ass to me. That's what you get. When was I a smart ass to you? Oh, right before we started this episode? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Now I'm going to be talking about panty sniffing. But you have to pay him seven to lick him. Crusty. (laughs) Crunchy. (laughs) I'm literally going to fucking throw up. You just don't even know. I'm literally gagging. Okay, anyways, granted, during the ransacker spree, the predominant belief was that only burglaries had been committed. However, it's highly suspected that there may have been one murder back then. Okay, now, approximately one year after the rapist had stopped terrorizing homes, 
1976, the East Area Rapists began attacking women around the Sacramento area. Hey, you just changed it up a little bit. That's good. Yeah. For the most part, the rapes were committed in a single-level residence where a woman lived alone. In each residence where the rapist struck, there was also in very close proximity to an accessible escape route. Uh, hey, so we had planned to head. Yeah. It was determined that prior to attacking each victim, he would stalk his potential victim for a significant amount of time. Once he was able to commit their regular routine to memory, he had one more ritual to complete before he made his move. Was it wearing a pimp hat and carrying a cane? No, dude. Was it juggling bunny rabbits? No, dude. Was it riding a St. Bernard? No, dude. With a, with a cop siren on top of his head? Oh, my fucking God. You Flashing are lights? bugging me. Go pull over. Ruff, ruff, pull over. I fucking hate you. <laughs> okay, remember, because in 1976, he was working for the Auburn Police Department. That's when he started his East Area Rapist. Okay? Now, that's also where he got the East Bay Rapist and the East Side Rapist. They just kind of, you know. So... One or two nights before he committed the rape, probably the night before, he would don his mask, break into the residence while uh, while his intended victim was away. He wanted to make sure to tuck away the ligatures he would be using to tie the victim up later. Okay? Hmm. Then he walked around the house, opening doors, and took the bullets out of any gun that happened to be there. Then, before he left, he made sure that he had unlocked some windows and the sliding glass door. Because not everybody, if they keep their windows locked, go around checking all their windows if they haven't opened them. No, that's true, yeah. You know, because they assume, oh, it's locked. Yeah, makes sense. You know. The dude thought this shit through. I'm actually a little bit impressed. Very much so. Most of our people don't think this shit through. Yeah. So once the pre-pan part of his rape, or his ritual was nearly perfected, he took more risks. He eventually started to target couples instead of just women who lived alone. He's raping couples? How, no, you'll oh, find out. Wow. However, it doesn't appear as if he altered his plea plan ritual in the slightest. Hmm. Okay? Now, when the rapist started to attack couples, on the day of the attack, he would enter the house silently so he wouldn't wake them up. Yeah, he was very stealthy. Like a cat burglar. Shut up. When he was ready, he would wake them by pointing a flashlight right at their face so they couldn't see him. Okay? Uh, Yeah. He would make sure, though, that they could see the gun in his hand so that they didn't try to struggle as he secured their wrists tightly with the ligatures he had left behind. Okay? So I'm assuming he, like, left them right there in the room. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, After both the man and the woman were nice and secure... In their bindings, he would force the man to lie face down. Then he would stack some dishes on this man's back before telling him, telling the guy, everyone in the house will die if I hear any of them rattle. So he like had a fetish of control and there's so much going on with the psychoanalyze. Oh, you just don't even know. It's like, you know, um, So after he made sure the guy wasn't going to move, 
He proceeded to violently rape the woman repeatedly. Fuck. Yeah. On one occasion, he was almost apprehended. But he managed to get away on a bicycle, which actually was one of his preferred methods of escape. You know, because he would leave it close by because that way he didn't have to get in a car. And a car was an identi- a bike isn't as identifiable as a car, a random car sitting around. Sometimes you want a nice little bike ride. Yeah, no, I, I dig. Yeah. Well, I mean, somebody who sees a random bike isn't going to say, why is that bike in my neighborhood? I would. Would you really? A bicycle? Yeah. yeah. Really? Because that means another new kid probably moved in the neighborhood, and I hate children. But what if one of the already existing kids just got a new fucking bike, Scott? Then I want to know. I want to make sure they're not importing any more little fucking crotch goblins. They need to stay out of my fucking neighborhood. Go back where you go back where you came from. Your mom's vagina. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're so stupid. Where was I? Um, however, the same media outlets that assigned the monikers were under the impression that they had stopped by 1979. Okay. They didn't even think for a moment that the Vasilia Ransacker and the East Area Rapist were actually the same person. They believed there were two different suspects. Okay? Unfortunately, the authorities didn't see any significant links either. Then, when the original Night Stalker made his appearance, they thought there were three suspects on the loose. Three three suspects. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah, the press gave him the nickname Night Stalker because it was the same... They named they had assigned to the new killer targeting the SoCal area in 1979. Okay. So when it comes to the crimes committed by the original Night Stalker, the attacks were somewhat similar to those of the East Area Rapist, somewhat. However, other than leaving the victims tightly bound while he made his escape, the stalker would either shoot or bludgeon them to kill them. Okay. The authorities say that a minimum of 10 people were killed by the original Night Stalker. By the time the stalker had ended his spree, the authorities still weren't clear that they were looking for one suspect. They did <laughs> notice that, there were, that they were finding items similar to those used by the rapist, items such as matching ligatures and same-size shoe prints, but they still didn't link them all. While they were investigating the crime, several rather threatening phone calls were received by both victims and the department. Sadly, DNA evidence was still practically non-existent, so they had no clue how valuable the evidence they had would be. But they kept it. Yeah, hell yeah. You know, and I will say this. I don't have it in here, but he would call up his rape victims after he had raped them, to taunt them, telling him, them he would be back. I'm going to start doing that to my special person. How are you going to do that if she has your number on her phone? That's harder nowadays than it was before. Damn it. So Although I know how to block my calls. Do you know how to block yours? I can Google that shit. Oh, uh, no, I know how to block my calls, but still. I can dial it up and sit there and go, I'm coming for you because you're Irish. Oh, then she'll know it's you. Oh, Scott, it's you. You're an asshole. Why are you such an asshole with me? You're always talking about the Irish and shit. What the hell's your problem, man? She doesn't sound like that. All women sound like that to me. I was going to say, you use that voice for all women. Yeah. Yeah. I don't sound like that. 
My name's Tammy. <laughs> I don't sound like that. I don't sound like a fucking valley girl. I'm, I don't sound like Gang a valley girl. Gang me with a fucking spoon, yo. <laughs> so tell me more about D'Angelo. <laughs> like white chicks. <laughs> you seen that movie? Uh, with the Wayans brothers? Yeah. Oh my God, it's so funny. Um, let's see here. Okay. Now, for those who have watched the news, read the news, or perhaps saw this information on social media, then you already know what I'm about to say. The authorities believe that last murder of the original Night Stalker, as well as, I mean, because after the original Night Stalker, they thought they had 10 victims, but then they had the Diamond Knot Killer and the Creek Bed Killer, right, that they think committed the victims through 1986. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. okay. Why'd they call him the diamond knot killer? Because seriously, I... Because the way he tied the ligatures. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I yeah, just, that... which I really don't get into a whole lot here, but well, yeah. Well, that's why I asked, because I was kind of yeah, thrown off Yeah, and a couple of one. his victims he actually left in a creek bed. Oh, that makes sense for the creek killer. That's I figured yeah. that one, but the diamond knot one, I'm all... Yeah, it's because of the way weird. he tied the ligatures. Oh, sure. Okay, cool. Okay, that being said... D'Angelo got a job working at the Roseville Safe Mart Distribution Center as a truck mechanic approximately three years after murdering the last victim in 1986. He retired from that position after 27 years in 2017. By then, the authorities had figured out that one individual was responsible for all the crime sprees and they had named him the Golden State Killer. Okay? Now, coincidentally, the FBI decided to reopen that investigation to apprehend the perpetrator one year before he retired. So in 2016. Now, according to the reports I found, and there is a shit ton of them, it's believed that D'Angelo settled in the Citrus Heights area in Sacramento back in 1983. Okay? One of his former neighbors, a woman by the name of Corey Harvey. Hang on. Excuse me. I have heartburn all of a sudden for some reason. Um, gave a statement after the authorities made their arrest. She said that D'Angelo's daughter and granddaughter had also resided in the house as well. Okay. Now, when Corey learned of the arrest and the allegations, she was flabbergasted and couldn't believe that she was hearing what she was hearing and reading. She was shocked that they had arrested, quote, Joe, the retired neighbor that talked about wanting to go fishing more often. How, and she even talked about how he was known to be an avid cycler, you know, just the average ordinary man, except for that quirkiness of getting mad. Yeah. Let me get, I will finish something and then I didn't get into it in my report, but I will share a little bit more. I, as far as D'Angelo's other neighbors, most of them didn't think he was such a personable grandfather like type man the way Corey did. For instance, there was one neighbor, Natalia Bettis Corrente, it was hyphen name, um, who lived just a few houses away. She stated, We used to call him Freak. He used to have these temper tantrums. Not at anybody, just expressing his self-frustration. So he'd be out in the front yard just fucking talking to himself, getting mad at himself. I do that shit. Back the fuck off of that shit. But do you do it outside? Naked. Well, except for the butter that I cover myself with on my nipples. Peanut butter or regular butter? Regular butter, of course. 
I only, I only put peanut butter on when I want to draw all the dogs to my yard. <laughs> my peanut butter paints all the dogs to the yard. You got it. <laughs> oh, my God. I am so done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it when I can lead you and you walk right into a trap. I fucking dig that. Then I walk right into the trap where I follow you in there. Uh huh. <laughs> it's a beautiful day. <laughs> so then another neighbor, a man by the name of Eddie Verdon, he talked about how he had caught D'Angelo prowling around his own property. How, not D'Angelo's property, but Vernon's property. And he said, I had the creeps about this guy for a long time. Maybe he's looking for his lost bunny rabbit. Okay, well, and then there was another neighbor, a younger kid, who talked about when he was really young, how their dog was barking. They lived on the other side of the fence. And their dog was barking one time, and D'Angelo actually called up and left a voicemail on their answer machine that said, shut that fucking dog up or I will kill it. Maybe he had a migraine headache. Okay. Maybe his hemorrhoids were flaring up. We don't know his side of the story. I have hemorrhoids, and I have never wanted to kill a dog for him. Well, you're not as angry as he is. He was a cop. He had to deal with a bunch of stuff. He's out there raping. You know, he's making sure that nobody breaks their dishes when they're on the husband's back and rattling. Yeah. Well, it's believed that he actually stole that hammer because it was back in 1970, around 79, that he stole that hammer and the dog repellent because he was going to start killing people because that's when he started bludgeoning people, remember? <laughs> and the dog repellent was to quiet the dogs if he came across property that had dogs so the dog wouldn't bark and draw anybody's attention. But it makes sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know? He's a yeah. busy guy, though. He's working like double, triple time. That's why, you know, dogs barking. It's like dudes just trying to chillax, you know, have a beer and watch Maury Povich or Jerry Springer. You know, while while he's taking a load off, he's like, I don't have to work today. I'm not going to rape anybody today. I'm just going to kind of hang out here in my chair and watch a little Jerry Springer. And he's yeah. yelling, Jerry, I have a, Jerry. I have a real theory when it comes to this case that this they have theory. not talked about. And he's all tired. He's like, I'm going to catch a little nappy nap. And then you hear it's probably a little chihuahua lap yapper who won't shut the fuck up. And he's like, I am going to kill. Or a Yorkie. Yeah. I'm going to kill that little fucking cockroach. I'm going to kill that little rat right there, that barking rat. You know, I had an ex-boyfriend who was about six foot four and like right around between 180 and 200 pounds. Jesus Christ. And he had literally a little tiny toy chihuahua for a pet. I go, no, dude, that doesn't even look right. But then when I went to go visit him, I love. I fell in love with that little dog. He you was did, my little. You didn't doggy. have a boyfriend. You had a girlfriend. <laughs> well, no. Well, and the funny part is, is I mean, because he named the dog Little Man, and Little Man was my heart. So when I was there for, because I stayed there a week and a half for ten days, he fucking that little dog was so protective of me that I mean, uh, my boyfriend's roommate could come into the house any other time, and the dog was like chill. But if I was alone, because my ex-boyfriend went to work, if I was alone and the dog was sitting in my lap, as soon as that door started to crack, he was like, wah, 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 wah. I go, oh, you love me. Dude, what the hell's that little fucking goddamn gremlin-looking motherfucker Yeah, but do? he was like, nobody better come in this house and hurt her. Nobody better lay a finger on my butterfinger. Well, and we all know my ghost would kill a bitch for me, but... I love ghosts. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, he tried to kill your dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um... So one retired detective, Larry Crompton, 
who was once employed at the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department. After D'Angelo was finally arrested, Crompton gave an interview trying to explain things. He said, over the years, we heard of homicides down in Southern California, and we thought it was the East Area Rapist. But we, he would not leave fingerprints, so we could not prove, other than his M.O., that he was the same person. So they had started getting some clues, right? We didn't know anything about DNA, okay? As a matter of fact, these suspicions weren't confirmed until 2001. That's when the authorities finally had the DNA reports proving that East Area Rapists and the original Night Stalker crimes were indeed committed by the same person. The only thing they had back then were some composites depicting the descriptions given by the survivors. Remember, D'Angelo's crimes weren't solved for approximately four decades. During that time span, the authorities looked at a handful of potential suspects. However, while they were investigating each suspect, they kept running into a dead end. They discovered that some of these suspects had died prior to the stalker's last known crime, or the suspects were cleared sometime in the 90s with DNA tests. Okay? Now, back in 2008, before he was apprehended, Michelle McNamara actually released a book. Okay, he was arrested in April, so I'm assuming she wrote this book in 2017 or, you know, prior to that and everything, because it was released before April. Okay? Um, She wrote a book about the crimes of the Golden State Killer. The book is titled I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And not too long ago, HBO actually adapted that book into a documentary. It's a really good documentary. When she wrote the book, she actually implied that if and when this killer was caught, it would be the DNA evidence that brought him down. By writing that, she made a prophetic statement. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to get into the part why I'm talking about this case and capture my attention. Some may already know this information, especially if they're from California. For the most part, people I have talked to about this case, though, had heard about the murders, but they didn't know how he was apprehended or why. Okay? I already mentioned how D'Angelo didn't leave any fingerprints at a crime scene. If he had, this case probably would have been solved before the murders committed the night, by the Night Stalker at the very least. However, it's likely he would have been apprehended before he committed the crimes of the rapist. Especially since he was an officer with two police departments, they would have had his fingerprints on record. Oh yeah, totally. Okay. So he did, however leave DNA at the crime scenes. Keep in mind, his crimes were committed from 1974 to 1986. Mm -hmm. Nothing after that. Right. So during those years, criminals weren't aware that their body fluids could be used as evidence. Okay? Some just knew the authorities sometimes collected samples to test to see what that fluid was. Okay. Okay? Thankfully authorities were smart enough to store that DNA evidence properly and they never disposed of it. Okay. Now when DNA technology had advanced enough, we already learned that the authorities were able to link all of the crimes. However, after that, they took it one step further. They utilized GED match, G E D match. That's when they were able to take all of the DNA evidence that was collected from the crime scenes to create a DNA profile. 
specific to the Golden State Killer. So they had his DNA evidence on file in case anybody else, if case somebody committed another crime and entered DNA into the database, it would come up that it was that person. Okay, cool, cool. Okay. Now, I know almost everyone is familiar with genealogy services such as Ancestry and 23andMe. Um, Anybody can utilize those services. Anybody. All they have to do is order the kit, swab their cheek, and send the swab back to the processing center. Once the processing center has that swab, they run the DNA test. Now, most people have this done in order to determine their ancestral background, you know, to find out what their mixture is. Um, However, what most people don't realize is that the services also keep a database of all the samples they have processed, and most of these services allow other services to access their databases. So it's like hundreds of databases that are all linked. Right. Okay. Now, the reason they do this is simple. Some of the people who have their DNA tested through the genealogy services also want to know if they have possible relatives out there. Okay. So the service they use um, combs through all of the humongous DNA databases to see if there are possible familial DNA matches out there. And familial DNA, I'm not going to get into the whole process, is identified by certain markers, which should t- take way too long to explain. But each each relative has a certain marker that connects them. Like, if I had a DNA from a relative from 100 years ago, we would have one one or two specific markers that linked us. Okay? So... Sometime after the FBI began to actively investigate the Golden State Killer case in 2006, they made the decision to utilize one of those services. They sent the DNA profile they had created in 2001 using all the DNA from the crime scenes. By 2018, they were able to narrow their search down for a potential suspect quite a bit. As a matter of fact, they were able to determine that the Golden State Killer had a familial match with somebody in the genealogy service DNA database. Okay? Once they had that information, they ramped up their investigation. They tried to determine what relatives this individual had that either lived in or had a connection to the areas where the crimes were committed. The FBI's lucky streak still had momentum. Their familial background information determined that there was one relative, albeit a distant relative, of this individual that met the criteria. That individual's name was Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. Now, all they had to do was obtain his DNA to see if it was a complete match, and if it wasn't, they were hoping it would at least be a closer familial match. Okay? Okay. Okay, so after narrowing down their search down to D'Angelo, they managed to obtain some of his DNA. However, they didn't want to spook him. In order to keep him from knowing they were investigating him, they put him under surveillance, and they followed him one day. And when he got out of his vehicle, an agent actually went up and swabbed the handle of his car door. Now, according to the documentary, they were afraid that he would see them do this. Okay, because you figure hand sweat. Yeah, so you open up the car door, you get that sweat on there, you get some epithelial cells, you know. So they went and swabbed the door handle. Okay, 
this is just bizarre to me. Um, and like I said, I don't get into it in my report, but when I watched the documentary, they said that they were worried that he would come out while they were sneaking up to his car to swab it. So they like kind of like crouched down and did it all stealthily. It was like really the way they talk about it was like, oh my God, you guys are fuck I'm scared because I cannot do anything anymore. Um so by April of 2018, the authorities learned that the DNA obtained from his car door handle was an exact match with the DNA profile cremated created from the crime scene. Um since the DNA that matched came from the outside handle of the vehicle, though, they just had to prove it was his that matched. It's just somebody who had touched his car. However, their luck was going strong still because the DNA that matched was the only DNA found on the door handle. That's when they knew they had their man. After all, they had visibly witnessed him grab the outside door handle. So they knew that it was his DNA. Right, right, right. Okay, so it couldn't be anybody but him. With that information, the FBI, as well as California law enforcement officials, swoop in and arrested D'Angelo. They actually waited until he came out of the house because as a former police officer, they assumed he had guns and shit. So if they catch Good him assumption. as he's coming out of the house, chances are he doesn't have a gun on him. Maybe, maybe not. Well, chances <laughs> are, I said. <sighs> So, and then after he gotten away with it for so long, he wouldn't even be thinking they were coming after him because they opened up the case again without letting people know. Um, oh, once the arrest was made, Marie Schubert, who was one of the district attorneys from Sacramento, spoke at a press conference. And I remember hearing this. She practically opened that press conference with this statement. Like, literally, they introduced her. She got up there. She said, we found the needle in the haystack, and it was right here in Sacramento. <laughs> Could you imagine all those years? He was right under their fucking nose. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and he was one of them. Yeah, that's what gets me the most. Yeah, well. A fucking cop, man. Doesn't surprise me. Um, as is the case with almost all murder trials, even after D'Angelo was arrested on April 24, 2018, his trial would have to take a long trip before a sentence could be handed down. You know, because other than a few trial murder trials, that, and there's one I want to cover, they take forever, like years. There is no freaking fast and speedy in a murder trial. <laughs> so when D'Angelo was finally in police custody, it sort of appeared like he made a confession well, he at least made some vague comment that implied he had an alternate personality who went by the name, quote, Jerry. According to this comment, Jerry had forced D'Angelo to commit all the crimes that appear to have been suddenly stopped in 1986. Now, at some point during his interrogation, investigators left him by himself in the room for a brief period of time. And the... Please don't say anything when I say this name. Please. Thien Ho, the prosecutor. Really? You expect me not to say anything about a hoe? For Sacramento County claims that this is what D'Angelo said to himself when he thought nobody was around. Because he was a cop back in the 70s, so I don't even know. Unless he watched, he should have been watching TV, because we all know that they videotaped those. He probably didn't know. And just in case, oh, you know what? I have a theory. And I didn't even think about that when I brought up this theory, but you're probably right. 
So I'm thinking he probably wants him to think that he's nuts or okay, something. Let me finish oh, my dinner. God, angry bullfrog. No, I wasn't angry. I was just trying to get you to shut your mouth. Fine. <laughs> I'm not quiet. angry. My eyes aren't yellow. I'll be quiet. Thank you. For Liar. right now. Continue. He said. I'm listening. I, stop it. I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all of those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I've got to pay the price. That's what he said in this thing. A little later, this statement will make more sense to you. Just wait. While D'Angelo was actively committing his crimes, he operated out of six different counties. Sacramento, Santa Barbara, Orange, Ventura, Tulare, and Contra Costa. Tulare. Whatever, Mr. California. California. I'm not the governor. I won't be back. (laughs) To hold a trial in all six counties, whether they held one trial per county or severed the cases in each county, because, you know, he committed several crimes, it would have been quite expensive. I'm sure with the number of charges Angela was facing in each county, the state would have stepped up and covered the cost, you know, because they did with the Charles Ng case, remember? Right, right, right. Even then, the Ng case cost the state $14 million before the freaking appeals. Yeah. Okay? In November of 2018, prosecutors of each six counties got together. Not to see which county would try them first, like what we like what we saw happen with the Anton Coleman and Deborah Brown case. They figured that if D'Angelo went to trial in all six counties, it wouldn't be it it would last for at least ten years before they got a conviction in all those counties. And that doesn't even count any of the appeals. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Not to mention, it would accumulate a cost of right around $20 million before appeals. Right. And by that time there, just looking at his pictures. He'd have been dead. He's already half dead right now. In 10 years, he's going to be nothing but bones and dust. Well, I have a theory about that, too. And I'll get to it in a second. So with that in mind, after discussing it amongst themselves, it was determined that D'Angelo would stand trial in one county. And they also decided there would only be one trial for all the murders. They weren't going to sever any of them. Okay, yeah. So they were trying to cut down the cost and the time to convict this man. Fair Which, enough. Yeah. You know what? Good for them. Yeah. Totally. You know what? Yeah. That's how I look at it. So everyone who followed the case will know what I mean when it comes to this next part. When the authorities arrested D'Angelo and led him through the perp walk, he looked healthy and active. Okay? Mm -hmm. Like, no matter how old he was, he looked healthy and active. Then a short time later, like maybe a day or two, when he had to appear for his arraignment, he insisted on being wheeled into the courtroom in a wheelchair. I know what he's going for. As the escorting officer pushed the chair over to the defense table, the D'Angelo people were seeing that day didn't even resemble the D'Angelo people saw during the perp walk. Just a couple days later, he was slouched down in the wheelchair, looking rather haggard and drawn. He wasn't clean shaven, so he looked scruffy. There was one thing that stood out to me the most, though. His head seemed to be just hanging there, 
almost like an infant before they develop their neck muscles. For those who were paying close attention, they actually saw some drool coming from the corner of his mouth like a basset hound waiting for my fucking hammer. I knew this was coming. Wait. So I'm sure everyone knew what was going on. Well, people who are familiar with laws or cases such as this one knew what was coming. You and I both knew. Oh, yeah. As soon as we write about that fucking confession, confession, <laughs> the way D'Angelo tried to present himself at his arraignment, it was obvious he was going to try and use a diminished capacity defense strategy. Look at me. I'm frail and diminished. Yeah. No, you're not. You're a fucking yeah. good actor. Well, you're you know what be, the so. problem with that is? is? It doesn't matter how frail and diminished <laughs> he was then. He committed his crimes in, by 1986. Uh-huh. So, you know what? Fuck off. He's just he's he knows he's going to get convicted, mm-hmm. but he's hoping for extreme leniency since he's at the end of his life, and they're thinking, ah, he's going to be checking he out. He can't soon. walk. He's in a wheelchair. He's drooling. He's all fucked up. He's like got a day or two left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's what he's hoping for. No, I knew as soon as I saw that arraignment video footage, I'm like, he was just walking two days. That bitch is going to go for an insanity defense. Yeah, well, just knowing when, when you said that he was talking to himself in the, in the interview. Yeah, see, I didn't himself. know about that until I did this article. But yeah, yeah, just hearing that, I'm sitting there going, oh, I see where he's going with it. He, know, he knows. He knows how to fuck. See, I didn't think that he knew about the videotaping, but when you said that, I'm like, oh, my God, he's probably right. Because mm-hmm. I knew that when he said that, that Jerry was there, that he was going to go for the insanity defense. Oh, totally. 100%. But then when I saw the wheel, I mean, because I didn't, like I said, I didn't know about that confession until I did this. But I was like, because I, I didn't even think about, you know, he knew that it was being recorded and knew that he had the proof there. Oh, totally. Because he started from the beginning and didn't wait till he was in jail like those other bitches did. He did it smart. He did it smart. I got to give him that. But he didn't do it right. He didn't do it right, but he did it smart. Yeah. Well, and then I go to say, little did he know, one didn't have to be a prosecutor to see through all that bullshit. Because I'm not a prosecutor and I saw through all that bullshit back in in 2018. Dead serious. Saw it. The first major part of the trial process came with a pretrial hearing. Okay? Mm -hmm. Judge White presided over the court, and during the pretrial proceedings, things were looking good for the prosecution. Judge White allowed the DNA evidence the authorities had to make the arrest admitted. Okay? And then, when the prosecution team asked for a court order to collect separate DNA from D'Angelo so that they had his DNA and not just from the door handle, he said yes. Uh, fair okay. enough, okay. D'Angelo had to go before the court for another arraignment in, July, in January 2019. This second arraignment was held after the completion of the grand jury investigation and the prosecutors all meeting together. Right. So it was also where he would find out all of the charges against him. Sadly, when it came to the burglaries and rapes that D'Angelo committed back in the 70s, there was nothing they could do because the statute of limitations had already passed. Okay. However, there's not a statute of limitations on murder. Correct. He was charged with 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping. Since he was still acting like an invalid, the court was forced to enter his plea for him of not guilty. Because he was acting like he couldn't fucking understand or couldn't talk. No, he, he, he thought this out. 
Yeah. He had an he escape was, plan. Yeah. I bet you he's had an escape plan since the 70s. You know what? I think you actually might be right. And it's, it probably just got adapted over the years when he, when, you know, just by watching TV going, hey, they record this shit, you know? So, okay. I know if I recorded, ever get caught. If I ever get caught, I got to be crazy. And the older I get, the more I, like, I have dementia. And. And I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm frail and, and, and harmless. I don't even know where I'm at. That yeah. type of bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So at that time, D'Angelo's defense team asked the court for more time before the trial date was set. They claimed this request was because they needed the extra time to review and gather all the evidence necessary. However, the judge said, nope. <laughs> On April 10th of 2019, there was another hearing. During this hearing, the prosecution made the announcement that they were definitely seeking the death penalty. Okay? The judge also ruled in favor of allowing the press and their cameras in the court gallery during the trial. Okay? Um, On March 4th, 2020, D'Angelo's attorneys went to the prosecution to let them know their client wanted to make a deal. He was willing to plead guilty to all of the charges if they were willing to to forego seeking the death penalty, and the prosecution said, nope, not going to happen, bitch. Sweet. I love it. Well, the preliminary hearing was scheduled for May 12th of 2020, but we all know what happened in May. However, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, that shut down the country. Mm -hmm. The proceedings had to be delayed. On June 29th of that year, D'Angelo's court proceedings resumed, but by then, and I believe it had to do with the COVID-19 and the long drawn-out trial, the prosecution came to a plea agreement with him. They agreed to take the death penalty off the table if he pled guilty to all 13 counts of murder, the special circumstances, and all 13 counts of kidnapping. Now, I was able to find out that the special circumstances in this case were the murders that were committed during the burglary and rapes. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So in California, and I think some other states do it too, because remember I had that question, what do special circumstances mean? Right. It means if there's another crime committed during the murder, it's called special circumstances. That makes sense, yeah. In Oregon, it's just called aggravated. Oh. You know? So finally, on October 21st, 2020, D'Angelo received a sentence. He would have to serve multiple life sentences consecutively, and there was absolutely no possibility he would be granted parole. He was actually given consecutive life sentence plus another, I think, eight or 80 years to make sure he was never going to get out. Wouldn't get out anyway. The dude is fucking like two days older than dirt. He's as old as Methuselah. Yeah. And so, well, I mean, he's older than my mom because he was born in 45. Mom was born in 48. Yeah, so he doesn't have yeah. very much long, longer to live anyway. Yeah, no, he's 76. Even if he gave him 20 years, he's not going to live to be 90. He's in prison. Most people don't live to be 90 in prison. That's true. <laughs> That's true. However, he might. Um, in the days prior to the judge... Handing down his sentence, the court heard from some of the victims as well as others who were associated with him. And some of these impact statements were given by individuals who were finally willing to break decades worth of silence. They hadn't said anything about the crimes in decades. Oh, holy shit. So one woman who was seven years old when she encountered D'Angelo, 
She will never forget the day that D'Angelo tied her up before he raped her mother. Jesus fucking During Christ, her man. impact statement, she said D'Angelo was, quote, proof monsters were real. I had met the boogeyman. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, because she was seven. Right, right, right. Yeah. Another victim's sister stood up to give a brief statement. All she said was, may he rot in hell. That's the only word she spoke. Yeah, fair enough, man. After D'Angelo listened to all of the impact statements for a few days, he stood to offer somewhat of a brief apology. And I just, I've listened to all of your statements, each one of them, and I'm truly sorry to everyone I have hurt. That November, D'Angelo was sent to be housed in North Kern State Prison, located in Delano, California, and he remained there until February of 2021 when he was put when he was transferred to protective custody and housed at California State Prison in Corcoran, which is like the most like maximum security prison in yeah. Oh, I thought it was San Quentin, but well, that's where they have death penalty, the death row. But San Corcoran Quentin? is like really, really, like really, because I used to watch Lock Up. Oh, gotcha. Brutal. Almost like uh, the one in um, New York that we talked about. Oh, um, 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 Clinton Prison. Yes, Clinton. Yeah, correctional. Um, so D'Angelo was married when he committed his crimes. Most of them were even committed once he and his wife had started having children. Now, nobody in his family. That's your damn ass neighbors. Told you. <laughs> I fucking hate him. Yeah, nobody in his family had any clue that he had burglarized, raped, and murdered for so many years. As a matter of fact, up until the day he was arrested, his daughter, his oldest daughter, believed her father was perfect. When it came to his wife, Sharon, every time he was away committing his crimes, she believed it was for the reasons he gave her, why he was away from the house. Oh, okay. She did file for, for and was granted divorce in 2019. Yeah, I, I would do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, my whole thing is, and I don't have this in my notes, is people asked, and I never heard this theory before, so I don't know if I'm coming up with it myself, but if I am, listen to me closely, because I am a fucking genius. Okay. People ask, why did he stop committing crimes in, in 1986? Did he, did he really stop or did he commit more and he just never knew about it? I believe he stopped. Want to know why? Why? Because in 1986 is when they started collecting DNA to test for blood type and all that other bullshit. So, and he didn't know that they were keeping all that DNA that they had collected. Because ah. in his mind, when he was doing this in the 70s and he was on the police force, he didn't see them doing this. So, he knew that he wasn't leaving fingerprints. But... When in 1986 is when they started, I mean, that was right around the time DNA had started being important and they could test for blood type and all that other bullshit. You know what I mean? That makes sense. Yeah. So he didn't want to be committing crimes anymore to leave DNA to link it back to him. So I believe he knew exactly what the fuck he was doing and was able to stop what he was doing because he didn't want to get caught. Which means that there is no alter ego to him or Absolutely other person. Not. Yeah, no, it makes sense because him being a cop, he would know that he shit. He would. Yeah, I do not believe that he committed more murders because he knew that 
people leave DNA back behind, whether they're wearing gloves and all that shit, no matter what. You yeah. can drop a hair without realizing it, all that bullshit. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's my theory. And I haven't, I've read almost all the articles like, well, there's a shit ton of them. But for the majority, I was reading the articles and I've seen a lot of documentaries on him and nobody has mentioned that. They just thought, why did he stop? Did something happen? Blah, blah, blah. Or are there more murders out there we don't know about? No. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No. Because I do not believe, I, I believe that he was coherent and competent enough to know that his DNA could, I mean, he could possibly leave DNA behind that could be traced back to him. Holy shit there, Detective Tammy. You know what? We've been doing this a long time, Scott. That does make sense. So as a cop, he would have all that information. Yeah. And he would know, hey, you know, because... Uh, I think th- he fucked up because he didn't know that they had saved the DNA they collected. Oh, totally. But, you know, as a cop, you're hanging around. They, would, they wouldn't even need to brief you on it. You hear, you hear detectives talking and shit. Dude, guess what? They're getting ready to start, you know, matching up DNA evidence. Oh, yeah, so totally. Get these markers. You know, well, I better quit raping and killing people. Yeah. Because I'm going to get caught. <laughs> well, and then you look at it. He progressed through the natural cycle of violence. <laughs> oh, my he God. Did. He started by stalking. Mm-hmm. Then he started by ra- burglary. Yeah. Then he went to rape and burglary. Then he went to fucking rape, murder and burglary. Yep. You know? So it's like. He progressed through the natural cycle. And back in the 70s, though, back in early 70s, DNA wasn't even on anybody's fucking radar at all. <laughs> yeah, no shit, huh? <laughs> they didn't know what DNA fucking was. Right. So, yeah, that's my theory. And if I'm right, I should get a fucking award. I'm I just think saying. You I kind of want to write him to find out why he quit. I would. To see if he'll tell me. <clears throat> but, yeah, that's where I'm at. So, wait, I got nothing else to add. I think I kind of agree with you. I got you think I'm right? Sense. Yeah, I think you're right. You don't, you don't think I'm, you don't have another theory no, about no, why you quit? No, it makes perfect fucking sense. It does, sense. doesn't it? You have to look at what would make somebody quit what they're doing. Exactly, because you and I both major. know that a serial killer does not really quit. Right, so if, if you would have said, hey, he got married in 1986, okay, that's, that's a life-changing thing. Yeah. He got married. Or uh, his daughter was born in 1986. Yep. Nope. That's a life-changing thing. I can see why you stopped. Mm-hmm. But DNA evidence, you're thinking that through, you're a cop. You're, hey, man, I better fucking knock this yeah. shit off. They're actually actively looking for me. Yeah, and if I leave my DNA, eventually they'll be able to link it back to me. Exactly. Yeah. But since he was, you know, since he was a cop when DNA wasn't even a fucking thing, he wouldn't even think that they were holding on to that DNA. Exactly. Just in case. Who would have thought that? Well, he wouldn't have, he didn't, probably didn't even know what DNA was. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, much less people are keeping fluid samples. Yeah. I mean, he knew that they were collecting fluids to see what it was. Like, right. is this water? Is this blah, blah, blah? You right. know? Right, right, right. Yeah, totally. So they were able to do that, but he didn't think that they were saving it for future just in case. <laughs> that He figured, okay, they're just testing it. They found out it was sweat. They found out it was semen. They found out this. Big deal. It's not going to come in handy later. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but Yeah. I was like, that's why I wanted to feature that. And I didn't want to get into a whole lot of his crimes because people know. Well, plus you have to think of, about this as well as that the degradation of, uh, of samples. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody would think if you're just a regular cop or anything like that, that a blood sample mm-hmm. wouldn't degrade pass or semen or anything like that. 
that you would think that in 40 years, mm-hmm. it's going to degrade past the point. Well, if they properly refrigerate it, it won't. Because everything rots. Is yeah. that, that's what you would think. Yeah. You're not thinking, hey, man, well, somebody's got this in a refrigerator. Yeah. Well, what gets me, though, is that they had the foresight to store it properly. That's fucking genius right there. That man. is fucking amazing to me. He would never have been caught if that didn't happen. No, that's very, very true. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I respect the police force on that in California, and I got a lot to say about California police. That's not very good because of all the other (laughs) bullshit that's happened down there with the law. That's that's some good fucking detective work Isn't that awesome shit, though? I like that story. Yeah, me too. We get to end the week with a feel-good. Yeah. I like that. Well, and not just a feel-good, but like it's like, it was amazing to me. I mean, because I was watching this documentary, and I'm like, Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I know he's well-known, but I have got to feature this part. I have got to talk about yeah, that. Totally. I totally get it. Yeah. So, there you go. That's my Joseph James D'Angelo. All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, or wherever you get your blogs. Take a look at our Patreon page. Help a brother out. And remember... Check it out today or tomorrow because we are going to have our contest on there for That's the T-shirts. Right. For the T-shirts. Yeah, buddy. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted okay. Blue LLC. All rights reserved. We'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.